This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by M.J. Eric and Anid by Chrétien de Troyes. Translated by W. W. Comfort. The rustic's proverb says that many a thing is despised that is worth much more than is supposed. Therefore he does well, who makes the most of whatever intelligence he may possess. For he who neglects this concern may likely omit to say something which would subsequently give great pleasure. So Chrétien de Troyes maintains that one ought always to study and strive to speak well and teach the right, and he derives from a story of adventure a pleasing argument, whereby it may be proved and known that he is not wise who does not make liberal use of his knowledge so long as God may give him grace. The story is about Eric the son of Locke, a story which those who earn a living by telling stories are accustomed to mutilate and spoil in the presence of kings and counts. And now I shall begin the tale, which will be remembered so long as Christendom endures. This is Chrétien's boast. One Easter day in the springtime, King Arthur held court in his town of Cardigan. Never was there seen so rich a court. For many a good knight was there, hardy, bold, and brave, and rich ladies and damsels, gentle and fair daughters of kings. But before the court was disbanded, the king told his knights that he wished to hunt the white stag, in order to observe worthily the ancient custom. When my lord Gawain heard this, he was sore displeased, and said, Sire, you will derive neither thanks nor goodwill from this hunt. We all know long since what this custom of the white stag is. Whoever can kill the white stag must forsooth kiss the fairest maiden of your court, come what may. But of this might come great ill, for there are here five hundred damsels of high birth, gentle and prudent daughters of kings, and there is none of them but has a bold and valiant knight for her lover, who would be ready to contend whether right or wrong, that she who is his lady is the fairest and gentlest of them all. The king replies, That I know well, yet will I not desist on that account, for a king's word ought never be gainsaid. Tomorrow morning we shall all gaily go to hunt the white stag in the forest of adventure, and very delightful this hunt will be. And so the affair is arranged for the next morning at daybreak. The morrow, as soon as it is day, the king gets up and dresses, and dons a short jacket for his forest ride. He commands the knights to be aroused, and the horses to be made ready. Already they are a horse, and off they go with bows and arrows. After them the queen mounts her horse, taking a damsel with her. A maid she was, the daughter of a king, and she rode a white palfrey. After them there swiftly followed a knight named Eric, who belonged to the round table and had great fame at the court. Of all the knights that ever were there, never one received such praise, and he was so fair, 
that nowhere in the world need one seek a fairer knight than he. He was very fair, brave, and courteous, though not yet twenty-five years old. Never was there a man of his age of greater knighthood. And what shall I say of his virtues? Mounted on his horse, and clad in an ermine mantle, he came galloping down the road, wearing a coat of splendid flowered silk, which was made at Constantinople. He had put on hose of brocade, well made and cut, and when his golden spurs were well attached, he sat securely in his stirrups. He carried no arm with him but his sword. As he galloped along at the corner of a street, he came up with the queen, and said, My lady, if it please you, I should gladly accompany you along this road, having come for no other purpose than to bear you company. And the queen thanks him, Fair friend, I like your company well, in truth, for better I could not have. Then they ride along at full speed until they come into the forest, where the party had gone before them, had already started the stag. Some wind the horns and others shout. The hounds plunge ahead after the stag, running, attacking, and baying. The bowmen shoot amain, and before them all rode the king on the Spanish hunter. Queen Guinevere was in the wood, listening for the dogs. Beside her were Eric and the damsel who was very courteous and fair. But those who had pursued the stag were so far from them that, however intently they might listen to catch the sound of horn or baying of hound, they no longer could hear either horse, huntsman, or hound. So all three of them drew rein in a clearing beside the road. They had been there but a short time when they saw an armed knight along his, on his steed with shield slung about his neck and his lance in hand the queen espied him from a distance by his right side rode a damsel of noble bearing and before them on a hack came a dwarf carrying in his hand a knotted scourge when queen guinevere saw the comely and graceful knight she desired to know who he and his damsel were so she bid her damsel go quickly and speak to him Damsel, says the queen, go and bid yonder knight come to me, and bring his damsel with him. The maiden goes on an amble straight toward the knight. But the spiteful dwarf sallies forth to meet her, with his scourge in hand, crying, Halt, maiden, what do you want here? You shall advance no farther. Dwarf, says she, let me pass. I wish to speak with yonder knight, for the queen sends me hither. The dwarf, who was rude and mean, took his stand in the middle of the road, and said, You have no business here. Go back. It is not meet that you should speak to so excellent a knight. The damsel advanced and tried to pass him by force, holding the dwarf in slight esteem when she saw that he was so small. Then the dwarf raised his whip when he saw her coming toward him, and tried to strike her in the face. She raised her arm to protect herself, but he lifted his hand again and struck her all unprotected on her bare hand. And so hard did he strike her on the back of her hand that it turned all black and blue. When the maiden could do nothing else, in spite of herself, she must needs return. So weeping, she turned back. The tears came to her eyes and ran down her cheeks. When the queen sees her damsel wounded, 
she is sorely grieved and angered, and knows not what to do. Ah, Eric, fair friend, she says, I am in great sorrow for my damsel, whom that dwarf has wounded. The knight must be discourteous indeed to allow such a monster to strike so beautiful a creature. Eric, fair friend, do you go to the knight and bid him come to me without delay. I wish to know him and his lady. Eric starts off thither, giving spurs to his steed, and rides straight toward the knight. The ignoble dwarf sees him coming and goes to meet him. Vassal, says he, stand back, for I know not what business you have here. I advise you to withdraw. Avant, says Eric, provoking dwarf, thou art vile and troublesome. Let me pass. You shall not. That I will. You shall not. Eric thrust the dwarf aside. The dwarf had no equal for villainy. He gave him a great blow with his lash right on the neck, so that Eric's neck and face are scarred with the blow of the scourge. From top to bottom appear the lines which the thongs have raised on him. He knew well that he could not have the satisfaction of striking the dwarf, for he saw the knight was armed, arrogant and of evil intent and he was afraid that he would soon kill him, should he strike the dwarf in his presence. Rashness is not bravery. So Eric acted wisely in retreating without more ado. My lady, he says, now matters stand worse, for the rascally dwarf has so wounded me that he has badly cut my face. I did not dare strike or touch him, but none ought to reproach me, for I was completely unarmed. I mistrusted the armed knight, who, being an ugly fellow and violent, would take it as no jest, and would soon kill me in his pride. But this much I will promise you, that if I can, I shall yet avenge my disgrace, or increase it. But my arms are too far away to avail me in this time of need, for at Cardigan did I leave them this morning when I came away. And if I should go to fetch them there, Peradventure I should never again find the knight who is riding off apace. So I must follow him at once, far or near, until I find some arms to hire or borrow. If I find someone who will lend me arms, the knight will quickly find me ready for battle. And you may be sure without fail that we two shall fight until he defeat me, or I him. And if possible I shall be back by the third day when you will see me home again, either joyous or sad, I know not which. Lady, I cannot delay longer, for I must follow after the night. I go. To God I commend you. And the queen, in like manner, more than five hundred times commends him to God, that he may defend him from harm. Eric leaves the queen and ceases not to pursue the knight. The queen remains in the wood, where now the king had come up with the stag. The king himself outstripped the others at the death. Thus they killed and took the white stag, and all returned, carrying the stag, till they came again to Cardigan. After supper, when the knights were all in high spirits throughout the hall, the king, as the custom was, because he had taken the stag, said that he would bestow the kiss, and thus observe the custom of the stag. Throughout the court a great murmur is heard, 
each one bows and swears to his neighbor that it shall not be done without the protest of sword or ashen lance. Each one gallantly desires to contend that his lady is the fairest in the hall. Their conversation bodes no good, and when my lord Gowan heard it, you must know that it was not to his liking. Thus he addressed the king. Sire, he says, your knights here are greatly aroused, and all their talk is of this kiss. They say that it shall never be bestowed without disturbance and a fight. And the king wisely replied to him, Fair nephew Gowan, give me counsel now, sparing my honor and my dignity, for I have no mind for any disturbance. To the council came a great part of the best knights of the court. King Eder arrived, who was first to be summoned, and after him King Cadwallat, who was very wise and bold. Kay and Gerflet came too, and King Amongwan was there, and a great number of other knights were there with them. The discussion was in process when the queen arrived and told them of the adventure which she had met in the forest, of the armed knight who she saw, and of the malicious little dwarf who had struck her damsel on the bare hand with his whip, and who had struck Eric too in the same way an ugly blow on the face, but that Eric followed the knight to obtain vengeance or increase his shame, and how he said that if possible he would be back by the third day. Sire, says the queen to the king, listen to me a moment. If these knights approve what I say, postpone this kiss until the third day, when Eric will be back. There is none who does not agree with her, and the king himself approves her words. Eric steadily follows the knight who was armed and the dwarf who had struck him until they came to a well-placed town, strong and fine. They enter straight through the gate. Within the town there was great joy of knights and ladies, of whom there were many and fair. Some were feeding in the streets their sparrow-hawks and molting falcons, Others were giving an airing to their tercels, their mewed birds, and young yellow hawks. Others play at dice, or other game of chance, some at chess, some at backgammon. The grooms in front of the stables are rubbing down and currying the horses. The ladies are bedecking themselves in their boudoirs. As soon as they see the knight coming, whom they recognized with his dwarf and damsel, they go out three by three to meet him. The knight they all greet and salute, but they give no heed to Eric, for they did not know him. Eric follows closely upon the knight through the town, until he saw him lodged. Then, very joyful, he passed on a little farther, until he saw reclining upon some steps, a vavasor well on in years. He was a comely man with white locks, debonair, pleasing, and frank. There he was seated all alone, seeming to be engaged in thought. Eric took him for an honest man, who would at once give him lodging. When he turned through the gate into the yard, the Vavasor ran to meet him and saluted him before Eric had said a word. Fair sir, says he, be welcome. If you will deign to lodge with me, here is my house all ready for you. Eric replies, Thank you. For no other purpose have I come. I need a lodging place this night. Eric dismounts from his horse, which the host himself leads away by the bridle, and does great honor to his guest. 
the vavasor summons his wife and his beautiful daughter who were busy in a workroom doing i know not what the lady came out with her daughter who was dressed in a soft white underrobe with wide skirts hanging loose in folds over it she wore a white linen garment which completed her attire and this garment was so old that it was full of holes down the sides poor indeed was her garb without but within her body was fair the maid was charming in sooth for nature had used all her skill in forming her nature herself had marvelled more than five hundred times how upon this one occasion she had succeeded in creating such a perfect thing never again could she strive successfully to reproduce her pattern nature bears witness concerning her that never was so fair a creature seen in all the world in truth i say that never did isut the fair have such radiant golden tresses that she could be compared with this maiden the complexion of her forehead and face was clearer and more delicate than the lily but with wondrous art her face with all its delicate pallor was suffused with a fresh crimson which nature had bestowed upon her her eyes were so bright that they seemed like two stars god never formed better nose mouth and eyes what shall i say of her beauty in sooth she was made to be looked at for in her one could have seen himself as in a mirror so she came forth from the workroom and when she saw the knight whom she had never seen before she drew back a little because she did not know him and in her modesty she blushed eric for his part was amazed when he beheld such beauty in her and the vavasor said to her fair daughter dear take this horse and lead him to the stable along with my own horses see that he lack for nothing take off his saddle and bridle and give him oats and hay look after him and curry him that he may be in good condition the maiden takes the horse unlaces his breast strap and takes off his bridle and saddle now the horse is in good hands for she takes excellent care of him she throws a halter over his head rubs him down curries him and makes him comfortable then she ties him to the manger and puts plenty of fresh sweet hay and oats before him then she went back to her father who said to her fair daughter dear take now this gentleman by the hand and show him all honour take him by the hand upstairs the maiden did not delay for in her there was no lack of courtesy and led him by the hand upstairs the lady had gone before and prepared the house she had laid embroidered cushions and spreads upon the couches where they all three sat down with eric with his host beside him and the maiden opposite before them the fire burns brightly the vavasor had only one man-servant and no maid for chamber or kitchen work this one man was busy in the kitchen preparing meat and birds for supper a skilful cook was he who knew how to prepare meat in boiling water and birds on the spit when he had the meal prepared in accordance with the orders which had been given him he brought them water for washing in two basins the table was soon set cloths bread and wine set out and they sat down to supper they had their fill of all they needed when they had finished and when the table was cleared eric thus addressed his host the master of the house 
Tell me, fair host, he asks, why your daughter, who is so passing fair and clever, is so poorly and unsuitably attired. Fair friend, the Vavasor replied, many a man is harmed by poverty, and even so am I. I grieve to see her so poorly clad, and yet I cannot help it, for I have been so long involved in war that I have lost or mortgaged or sold all my land, and yet she would be well enough dressed if I allowed her to accept everything that people wish to give her. The lord of this castle himself would have dressed her in becoming fashion, and would have done her every manner of favor, for she is his niece, and he is a count. But there is no nobleman in this region, however rich and powerful, who would not willingly have taken her to wife, had I given my consent. But I am waiting for some better occasion, when God shall bestow still greater honor upon her, when fortune shall bring hither some king or count, who shall lead her away. For there is under heaven no king or count who would be ashamed of my daughter, who is so wondrous fair that her match cannot be found. Fair indeed is she, but yet greater far than her beauty is her intelligence. God never created any one so discreet and of such open heart. When I have my daughter beside me, I don't care a marvel about all the rest of the world. She is my delight and my pastime. She is my joy and comfort, my wealth and my treasure. And I love nothing so much as her own precious self. When Eric had listened to all that his host told him, he asked him to inform him whence came all the chivalry that was quartered in the town. For there was no street or house so poor and small, but it was full of knights and ladies and squires. And the Vavasor said to him, Fair friend, these are the nobles of the country round. All, both young and old, have come to a fete which is to be held in this town to-morrow. Therefore the houses are so full. When they shall all have gathered, there will be a great stir to-morrow, for in the presence of all the people there will be set upon a silver perch a sparrow-hawk of five or six moltings, the best you can imagine. Whoever wishes to gain the hawk must have a mistress who is fair, prudent, and courteous. And if there be a knight so bold as to wish to defend the worth and the name of the fairest in his eyes, he will cause his mistress to step forward and lift the hawk from the perch, if no one dares to interpose. This is the custom they are observing, and for this each year they gather here. Thereupon Eric speaks and asks him, Fair host, may it not displease you, but tell me if you know, who is a certain knight bearing arms of azure and gold, who passed by here not long ago, having close beside him a courtly damsel, preceded by a humped back wharf? To him the host then made reply, That is he who will win the hawk without any opposition from the other knights. I don't believe that anyone will offer opposition. This time there will be no blows or wounds. For two years already he has won it without being challenged, and if he wins it again this year, he will have gained permanent possession of it. Every succeeding year he may keep it without contest or challenge. Quickly, Eric makes reply, I do not like that knight. Upon my word, 
Had I some arms, I should challenge him for the hawk. Fair host, I beg you as a boon to advise me how I may be equipped with arms, whether old or new, poor or rich, it matters not. And he replies to him generously, It were a pity for you to feel concern on that score. I have good fine arms which I shall be glad to lend you. In the house I have a triple woven hauberk, which was selected from among five hundred, and I have some fine, valuable greaves, polished, handsome, and light in weight. The helmet is bright and handsome, and the shield fresh and new. Horse, sword, and lance, all I will lend you, of course. So let no more be said. Thank you kindly, fair gentle host, but I wish for no better sword than this one which I have brought with me, nor for any other horse than my own, for I can get along well enough with him. But if you will lend me the rest, I shall esteem it a great favor. But there is one more boon I wish to ask of you, for which I shall make just return, if God grant that I come off from the battle with honor. And frankly, he replies to him, ask confidently for what you want, Whatever it be, for nothing of mine shall lack you. Then Eric said that he wished to defend the hawk on behalf of his daughter, for surely there will be no damsel who is one hundredth part as beautiful as she, and if he takes her with him, he will have good and just reason to maintain and to prove that she is entitled to carry away the hawk. Then he added, Sire, you know not what guest you have sheltered here, nor do you know my estate and kin. I am the son of a rich and Prussian king. My father's name is King Lack, and the Bretons call me Eric. I belong to King Arthur's court, and have been with him now three years. I know not if any report of my father or of me has ever reached this land, but I promise you and vow that you will fit me out with arms, and will give me your daughter to-morrow when I strike for the hawk, I will take her to my country, if God grant me the victory, and I will give her a crown to wear, and she shall be queen of three cities. Ah, fair sir, is it true that you are Eric, the son of Locke? That is who I am, indeed, quoth he. Then the host was greatly delighted and said, We have indeed heard of you in this country. Now I think all the more of you, for you are very valiant and brave. Nothing now shall you be refused by me. At your request, I give you my fair daughter. Then, taking her by the hand, he says, Here, I give her to you. Eric received her joyfully, and now has all he desired. Now they are all happy there. The father is greatly delighted, and the mother weeps for joy. The maiden sat quiet, but she was very happy and glad that she was betrothed to him, because he was valiant and courteous and she knew that he would some day be king, and she should receive honor and be crowned rich queen. They had sat up very late that night, but now the beds were prepared with white sheets and soft pillows, and when the conversation flagged, they all went to bed in happy frame. Eric slept little that night, and the next morning, at the crack of dawn, he and his host rose early. They both go to pray at church, and hear a hermit chant mass of the holy spirit not forgetting to make an offering when they had heard mass both kneel before the altar and then return to the house eric was eager for the battle so he asks for arms and they are given to him 
The maiden herself puts on his arms, though she casts no spell or charm. Laces on his iron greaves and makes them fast with a thong of deer hide. She puts on his haberts with its strong meshes and laces on his ventel. The gleaming helmet she sets upon his head and thus arms him well from tip to toe. At his side she fastens his sword and then orders his horse to be brought, which is done. Up he jumped clear of the ground. The damsel then brings the shield and the strong lance. She hands him the shield, and he takes it and hangs it about his neck by the strap. She places the lance in his hand, and when he had grasped it by the butt-end, he thus addressed the gentle Vavasor. Fair sire, quoth he, if you please, make your daughter ready now for I wish to escort her to the sparrow-hawk, in accordance with our agreement. The Vavasor then, without delay, had saddled a bay palfrey. There can nothing be said of the harness because of the dire poverty with which the Vavasor was afflicted. Saddle and bridle were put on, and up the maiden mounted, all free and in light attire, without waiting to be urged. Eric wished to delay no longer, so off he starts, with the host's daughter by his side, followed by the gentleman and his lady. Eric rides with lance erect and with the comely damsel by his side. All the people, great and small, gaze at them with wondering eyes as they pass through the streets. And thus they question each other, Who is yonder knight? He must be doughty and brave, indeed, to act as escort for this fair maid. His efforts will be well employed in proving that this damsel is the fairest of them all. One man to another says, In very truth she ought to have the sparrow-hawk. Some praise the maid, while many said, God, who can this knight be, with the fair damsel by his side? I know not, nor I. Thus spake each one. But his gleaming helmet becomes him well, and the havoc and shield, and his sharp steel sword. He sits well upon his steed, and has the bearing of a valiant vassal, well shaven in arm, in limb, and foot. While all thus stand and gaze at them, they for their part made no delay to take their stand by the sparrow-hawk, where to one side they awaited the knight. And now, behold, they see him come attended by his dwarf and his damsel. He had heard the report that a knight had come who wished to obtain the sparrow-hawk, but he did not believe there could be in the world a knight so bold as to dare to fight with him. He would quickly defeat him and lay him low. All the people knew him well, and all welcomed him and escort him in a noisy crowd. Knights, squires, ladies, and damsels make haste to run after him, Leading them all, the knight rides proudly on, with his damsel and his dwarf at his side, and he makes his way quickly to the sparrow-hawk. But all about it was such a press of the rough and vulgar crowd that it was impossible to touch the hawk or to come near where it was. Then the count arrived on the scene and threatened the populace with a switch which he held in his hand. The crowd drew back, and the knight advanced, and said quietly to his lady, My lady, 
this bird, which is so perfectly molded and so fair, should be yours as your just portion. For you are wondrous fair and full of charm. Yours it shall surely be so long as I live. Step forward, my dear, and lift the hawk from the perch. The damsel was on the point of stretching forth her hand when Eric hastened to challenge her, little heeding the other's arrogance. Damsel, he cries, stand back. Go dally with some other bird, for to this one you have no right. In spite of all, I say this hawk shall never be yours, for a better one than you claims it. I, much more fair and more courteous. The other knight is very wroth, but Eric does not mind him, and bids his own maiden step forward. Fair one, he cries, come forth. Lift the bird from the perch, for it is right that you should have it. Damsel, come forth, for I will make boast to defend it, if any one is so bold as to intervene. For no woman excels you in beauty or worth, in grace or honor, any more than the moon outshines the sun. The other could suffer it no longer, when he hears him so manfully offer himself to do battle. Vassal, he cries, who art thou who dost thus dispute with me the hawk? Eric boldly answers him, a knight I am from another land. This hawk I have come to obtain, for it is right, I say it in spite of all, that this damsel of mine should have it. Away, cries the other, it shall never be. Madness has brought thee here. If thou dost wish to have the hawk, thou shalt pay, fight dearly for it. Pay, vassal, and how? Thou must fight with me if thou dost not resign it to me. You talk madness, cries Eric, for me these are idle threats, for little enough do I fear you. Then I defy thee here and now, the battle is inevitable. Eric replies, God help me now, for never did I wish for aught so much. Now soon you will hear the noise of battle. The large place was cleared, with the people gathered all around. They draw off from each other the space of an acre, then drive their horses together. They reach for each other with the tips of their lances and strike each other so hard that the shields are pierced and broken. The lances split and crack, the saddle bows are knocked to bits behind. They must needs lose their stirrups, so they both fall to the ground, and the horses run off across the field. Though smitten with the lances, they are quickly on their feet again and draw their swords from the scabbards. With great fierceness they attack each other and exchange great sword blows, so that the helmets are crushed and made to ring. Fierce is the clash of the swords as they rain great blows upon neck and shoulders. For this is no mere sport. They break whatever they touch, cutting the shields and shattering the havocs. The swords are red with crimson blood. Long the battle lasts, but they fight so lustily that they become weary and listless. Both the damsels are in tears, and each knight sees his lady weep and raise her hands to God and pray that he may give the honors of the battle to the one who strives for her. 
Ha, vassal, quoth the knight to Eric, let us withdraw and rest a little, for too weak are these blows we deal. We must deal better blows than these, for now it draws near evening. It is shameful and highly discreditable that this battle should last so long. See yonder that gentle maid who weeps for thee and calls on God. Full sweetly she prays for thee, as does also mine for me. Surely we should do our best with our blades of steel for the sake of our lady loves. Eric replies, You have spoken well. Then they take a little rest. Eric looking toward his lady as she softly prays for him. While he sat and looked on her, great strength was recruited within him. Her love and beauty inspired him with great boldness. He remembered the queen, to whom he pledged his word that he would avenge the insult done him, or would make it greater yet. Ah, wretch, says he, why do I wait? I have not yet taken vengeance for the injury which this vassal permitted when his dwarf struck me in the wood. His anger is revived within him as he summons the knight. Vassal, quoth he, I call you to battle anew. Too long we have rested. Let us now renew our strife. And he replies, that is no hardship to me. Whereupon they again fall upon each other. They were both expert fencers. At his first lunge, the knight would have wounded Eric, had he not skillfully parried. Even so, he smote him so hard over the shield beside his temple that he struck a piece from his helmet. Closely shaving his white coif, the sword descends, cleaving the shield through to the buckle, cutting more than a span from the side of his hauberk. Then he must have been well stunned, as the cold steel penetrated to the flesh on his thigh. May God protect him now. If the blow had not glanced off, it would have cut right through his body. But Eric is in no wise dismayed, pays him back what is owing him, and, attacking him boldly, smites him upon the shoulder so violently a blow that the shield cannot withstand it, nor is the hauberk of any use to prevent the sword from penetrating to the bone. He made the crimson blood flow down to his waistband. Both of the vassals are hard fighters. They fight with honors even. For one cannot gain from the other a single foot of ground. Their hauberks are so torn and their shields so hacked that there is actually not enough of them left to serve as a protection. So they fight all exposed. Each one loses a deal of blood, and both grow weak. He strikes Eric, and Eric strikes him. Eric deals him such a tremendous blow upon the helmet that he quite stuns him. Then he lets him have it again and again, giving him three blows in quick succession, which entirely split the helmet and cut the coif beneath it. This sword even reaches the skull and cuts a bone of his head, but without penetrating the brain. He stumbles and totters, and while he staggers, Eric pushes him over so that he falls upon his right side. Eric grabs him by the helmet and forcibly drags it from his head and unlaces the ventail so that his head and face are completely exposed. When Eric thinks of the insult done him by the dwarf in the wood, he would have cut off his head had he not cried for mercy. Ah, vassal, says he, thou hast defeated me. Mercy now, and do not kill me. 
after having overcome me and taken me prisoner. That would never bring thee praise or glory. If thou shouldst touch me more, thou wouldst do great villainy. Take here my sword, I yield it to thee. Eric, however, does not take it, but says in reply, I am within an ace of killing thee. Ah, gentle knight, mercy! For what crime, indeed, and for what wrong should thou hate me with mortal hatred? I never saw thee before that I am aware, and never have I been engaged in doing thee any shame or wrong. Eric replies, Indeed you have. Ah, sire, tell me when, for I never saw you that I can remember, and if I have done you any wrong, I place myself at your mercy. Then Eric said, Vassal, I am he who was in the forest yesterday with Queen Guinevere, when thou didst allow thou ill-bred dwarf to strike my lady's damsel. It is disgraceful to strike a woman. And afterwards he struck me, taking me for some common fellow. Thou wast guilty of too great insolence when thou sawest such an outrage, and didst placently permit such a monster of a lout to strike the damsel and myself. For such a crime I may well hate thee, for thou hast committed a grave offence. Thou shalt now constitute thyself my prisoner, and without delay go straight to my lady, whom thou wilt surely find at Cardigan, if thither thou takest thy way. Thou wilt reach there this very night, for it is not seven leagues from here, I think. Thou shalt hand over to her thyself, thy damsel, and thy dwarf, to do as she may dictate, and tell her that I send her word that to-morrow I shall come contented, bringing with me a damsel so fair and wise and fine that in all the world she has not met her match. So much thou mayest tell her truthfully, and now I wish to know thy name. Then he must needs say, in spite of himself, Sire, my name is Eder, son of Newt. This morning I had not thought that a single man by force of arms could conquer me. Now I have found by experience a man who is better than I. You are a very valiant knight, and I pledge you my faith here and now, that I will go without delay and put myself in the queen's hands. But tell me without reserve what your name may be. Who shall I say it is that sends me, for I am ready to start? And he replies, My name I will tell thee without disguise. It is Eric. Go, and tell her that it is I who have sent thee to her. Now I'll go, and I promise you that I will put my dwarf, my damsel, and myself all together at her disposal. You need have no fear, and I will give her news of you and your damsel. Then Eric received his plighted word, and the count and all the people round about the ladies and the gentlemen were present at the agreement. Some were joyous and some downcast, some were very sorry and others glad. The most rejoiced for the sake of the damsel with the white raiment, the daughter of the poor Vavasor, she of the gentle and open heart, but his damsel and those who were devoted to him were sorry for Eder. Eder, compelled to execute his promise, did not wish to tarry longer, but mounted his steed at once. But why should I make a long story? 
taking his dwarf and his damsel they traversed the woods and the plain going on straight until they came to cardigan in the bower outside the great hall gowan and kay the seneschal and a great number of other lords were gathered the seneschal was the first to espy those approaching and said to my lord gowan sire my heart divines that the vassal who yonder comes is he of whom the queen spoke as having yesterday done her such an insult if i am not mistaken there are now three in the party for i see the dwarf and the damsel that is so says my lord gowan it is surely a damsel and a dwarf who are coming straight toward us with the knight the knight himself is fully armed but his shield is not whole if the queen should see him she would know him hello seneschal go call to her now so he went straight away and found her in one of the apartments my lady says he do you remember the dwarf who yesterday angered you by wounding your damsel yes i remember him right well seneschal have you any news of him why have you mentioned him lady because i have seen a knight errant armed coming upon a grey horse and if my eyes have not deceived me i saw a damsel with him and it seems to me that with him comes the dwarf who still holds the scourge from which eric received his lashing then the queen rose quickly and said let us go quickly seneschal to see if it is the vassal if it is he you may be sure that i shall tell you so as soon as i see him and kay said i will show him to you come up into the bower where your knights are assembled it was from there we saw him coming and my lord gowan himself awaits you there my lady let us hasten thither for here we have too long delayed then the queen bestirred herself and coming to the window she took her stand by my lord gowan and straightway recognized the knight ha my lords she cries it is he he has been through great danger he has been in a battle i do not know whether eric has avenged his grief or whether this knight has defeated eric but there is many a dent upon his shield and his hauberk is covered with blood so that it is rather red than white in sooth my lady quoth sir lord gowan i am very sure you are quite right his hauberk is covered with blood and pounded and beaten showing plainly that he has been in a fight we can easily see that the battle has been hot. Now we shall soon hear from him news that will give us joy or gloom. Whether Eric sends him to you here as a prisoner at your discretion, or whether he comes in pride of heart to boast before us arrogantly that he has defeated or killed Eric. No other news can he bring, I think. The queen says, I am of the same opinion. And all others say, it may well be so meanwhile eder enters the castle gate bringing them news they all came down from the bower and went to meet him eder came up to the royal terrace and there dismounted from his horse and gowan took the damsel and helped her down from her palfrey the dwarf for his part dismounted too there were more than one hundred knights standing there and when the three newcomers had all dismounted they were led into the king's presence as soon as Eder saw the queen, he bowed low and first saluted her. Then the king and his knights and said, Lady, I am sent here as your prisoner by a gentleman, a valiant and noble knight, whose face yesterday my dwarf made smart with his knotted scourge. He has overcome me at arms and defeated me. 
Lady, this dwarf I bring you here. He has come to surrender to you at discretion. I bring you myself, my damsel, and my dwarf to do with us as you please. The queen keeps her peace no longer, but asks for news of Eric. Tell me, she says, if you please, do you know when Eric will arrive? Tomorrow, my lady, and with him a damsel he will bring, the fairest of all I ever knew. When he had delivered his message, the queen, who was kind and sensible, said to him courteously, Friend, since thou hast thrown thyself upon my mercy, thy confinement shall be less harsh, for I have no desire to seek thy harm. But tell me now, so help ye God, what is thy name? And he replies, Lady, my name is Eder, son of Nook. And they knew that he had told the truth. Then the queen arose, and going before the king, said, Sire, did you hear? You have done well to wait for Eric the valiant knight. I gave you good advice yesterday when I counseled you to await his return. This proves that it is wise to take advice. The king replies, That is no lie. Rather, it is perfectly true that he who takes advice is no fool. Happily we followed your advice yesterday. But if you care anything for me, release this knight from his durance, provided he consent to join henceforth my household in court. And if he does not consent, let him suffer the consequence. When the king had thus spoken, the queen straightway released the knight, but it was on this condition that he should remain in the future at the court. He did not have to be urged before he gave his consent to stay. Now he was of the court and household, to which he had not before belonged. Then valets were at hand to run and relieve him of his arms. Now we must revert to Eric, whom we left in the field where the battle had taken place. Even Tristan, when he slew fierce Morhot on St. Samson's Isle, awakened no such jubilee as they celebrated here over Eric. Great and small, thin and stout, all make much of him and praise his knighthood. There is not a knight but cries, Lord, what a vassal! Under heaven there is not his like. They follow him to his lodgings, praising him and talking much. Even the Count himself embraces him, who, above the rest, was glad, and said, Sire, if you please, you ought by right to lodge in my house, since you are the son of King Locke. If you would accept my hospitality, you would do me a great honor, for I regard you as my liege. Fair sire, may it please you, I beg you to lodge with me. Eric answers, May it not displease you, but I shall not desert my host to-night, who has done me much honor in giving me his daughter. What say you, sir? Is it not a fair and precious gift? Yes, sire, the count replies. The gift in truth is fine and good. The maid herself is fair and clever, and besides is a very noble birth. You must know that her mother is my sister. Surely I am glad at heart that you should deign to take my niece. Once more I beg you to lodge with me this night. Eric replies, Ask me no more, I will not do it. Then the Count saw that further insistence was useless, and said, Sire, as it please you, we may well say no more about it, but I and my knights will all be here with you tonight to cheer you and to bear you company. Then the Count saw that further insistence was useless, and said, Sire, as it please you, we may as well say no more about it, but I and my knights will all be here with you tonight to cheer you and bear you company. 
When Eric heard that, he thanked him and returned to his host's dwelling, with the Count attending him. Ladies and knights were gathered there, and the Vavasor was glad at heart. As soon as Eric arrived, more than a score of squires ran quickly to remove his arms. Any one who was present in that house could have witnessed a happy scene. Eric went first and took his seat. Then all the others in order sit down upon the couches, the cushions, and benches. At Eric's side the Count sat down, and the damsel, with her radiant face, who was feeding the much-disputed hawk upon her wrist with a plover's wing. Great honor and joy and prestige had she gained that day, and she was very glad at heart, both for the bird and for her lord. She could not have been happier, and showed it plainly, making no secret of her joy. All could see how gay she was, and throughout the house there was great rejoicing for the happiness of the maid they loved. Eric thus addressed the Vavasor. Fair host, fair friend, fair sire, you have done me great honor, and richly shall it be repaid you. Tomorrow I shall take away your daughter with me to the king's court, where I wish to take her as my wife, and if you will tarry here a little, I shall send betimes to fetch you. I shall have you escorted into the country which is my father's now, but which later shall be mine. It is far from here, by no means near. There I shall give you two towns, very splendid, rich, and fine. You shall be Lord of Roadan, which was built in the time of Adam, and of another town close by, which is no less valuable. The people call it Montreval, and my father owns no better town. And before the third day has passed, I shall send you plenty of gold and silver, of dappled and gray furs, and precious silken stuffs, wherewith to adorn yourself and your wife, my dear lady. Tomorrow at dawn I wish to take your daughter to court, dressed and arrayed as she is at present. I wish my lady, the queen, to dress her in her best dress of satin and scarlet cloth. There was a maiden near at hand, very honorable, prudent, and virtuous. She was seated on a bench beside the maid with the white shift, and was her own cousin, the niece of my lord, the count. When she heard how Eric intended to take her cousin in such very poor array to the queen's court, she spoke about it to the count. Sire, she says, it would be a shame to you, more than to any one else, if this knight should take your niece away with him in such sad array. And the count made answer, gentle niece, do you give her the best of your dresses? But Eric heard the conversation and said, By no means, my lord, for be assured that nothing in the world would tempt me to let her have another robe until the queen shall herself bestow it upon her. When the damsel heard this, she replied, Alas, fair sire, since you insist upon leading off my cousin, thus dressed in a white shift and chemise, and since you are determined that she shall have none of my dresses, a different gift I wish to make her. I have three good palfreys, as good as any king or count, one sorrel, one dappled, and the other black with white forefeet. Upon my word, if you had a hundred to pick from, you should not find a better one than the dappled mount. The birds in the air do not fly more swiftly than the palfrey, and he is not too lively, but just suits a lady. A child can ride him, for he is neither skittish nor bulky, nor does he bite nor kick nor become unmanageable. Anyone who is looking for something better does not know what he wants, 
and his pace is so easy and gentle that a body is more comfortable and easy on his back than in a boat then said eric my dear i have no objection to her accepting this gift indeed i am pleased with the offer and do not wish her to refuse it then the damsel calls one of her trusty servants and says to him go friend saddle my dappled palfrey and lead him here at once and he carries out her command he puts on saddle and bridle and strives to make him appear well then he jumps on the maned palfrey which is now ready for inspection when eric saw the animal he did not spare his praise for he could see he was very fine and gentle so he bade a servant lead him back and hitch him in the stable beside his own horse then they all separated after an evening agreeably well spent the count goes off to his own dwelling and leaves eric with the vavasor saying that he will bear him company in the morning when he leaves all that night they slept well in the morning when the dawn was bright eric prepares to start commanding his horses to be saddled his fair sweetheart too awakes dresses and makes ready the vavasor and his wife rise too and every knight and lady there prepares to escort the damsel and the knight now they are all on horseback and the count as well eric rides beside the count having beside him his sweetheart ever mindful of her hawk having no other riches she plays with her hawk very merry were they as they rode along but when the time came to part the count wished to send along with eric a party of his knights to do him honour by escorting him but he announced that none should bide with him and that he wanted no company but that of the damsel then when they had accompanied him some distance he said in god's name farewell then the count kisses eric and his niece and commends them both to merciful god her father and mother too kiss them again and again and could not keep back their tears at parting the mother weeps the father and the daughter too for such is love and human nature and such is affection between parents and children they wept from sorrow tenderness and love which they had for their child yet they knew full well that their daughter was to fill a place from which great honour would accrue to them they shed tears of love and pity when they separated from their daughter but they had no other cause to weep they knew well enough that eventually they would receive great honour from her marriage so at parting many a tear was shed as weeping they commend one another to god and thus separate without more delay eric quit his host for he was very anxious to reach the royal court in his adventure he took great satisfaction for now he had a lady passing fair discreet courteous and debonair he could not look at her enough for the more he looks at her the more she pleases him he cannot help giving her a kiss he is happy to ride by her side and it does him good to look at her long he gazes at her fair hair her laughing eyes and her radiant forehead her nose her face and mouth for all of which gladness fills his heart he gazes upon her down to the waist at her chin and her snowy neck her bosom and sides her arms and hands but no less the damsel looks at the vassal with a clear eye and loyal heart as if they were in competition they would not have ceased to survey each other even for a promise of a reward a perfect match they were in courtesy beauty and gentleness and they were so alike in quality manner and customs that no one wishing to tell the truth could choose the better of them nor the fairer nor the more discreet 
Their sentiments, too, were much alike, so that they were well suited to each other. Thus each steals the other's heart away. Law or marriage never brought together two such sweet creatures. And so they rode along until just on the stroke of noon they approached the castle of Cardigan, where they were both expected. Some of the first nobles of the court had gone up to look from the upper windows and see if they could see them. Queen Guinevere ran up, and even the king came with Kai and Percival of Wales, and with them my lord Gawain and Tor, the son of King Ares. Lucan the cupbearer was there too, and many another doughty knight. Finally they espied Eric coming along in the company with his lady. They all knew him well enough, from as afar they could see him. The queen is greatly pleased, and indeed the whole court is glad of his coming, because they all love him so. As soon as he was come before the entrance hall, the king and queen go down to meet him, all greeting him in God's name. They welcome Eric and his maiden, commending and praising her great beauty. And the king himself caught her and lifted her down from her palfrey. The king was decked in fine array and was then in cheery mood. He did signal honor to the damsel by taking her hand and leading her up to the great stone hall. After them, Eric and the queen also went up hand in hand. And he said to her, I bring you, lady, my damsel and my sweetheart, dressed in poor garb. As she was given to me, so have I brought her to you. She is the daughter of a poor Vavasor. Through poverty, many an honorable man is brought low. Her father, for instance, is gentle and courteous, but he has little means. And her mother is a very gentle lady, the sister of a rich count. She has no lack of beauty or of lineage, that I should not marry her. It is poverty that has compelled her to wear this white linen garment until both sleeves are torn at the side. And yet, had it been my desire, she might have had dresses rich enough for another damsel a cousin of hers wished to give her a robe of ermine and of spotted or gray silk but i would not have her dressed in any other robe until you should have seen her gentle lady consider the matter now and see what need she has of a fine becoming gown and the queen at once replies you have done quite right it is fitting that she should have one of my gowns and I will give her straightway a rich fair gown, both fresh and new. The queen then hastily took her off to her own private room, and gave orders to bring quickly the fresh tunic and the greenish-purple mantle embroidered with little crosses that had been made for herself. The one who went at her behest came bringing to her the mantle and the tunic, which was lined with white ermine even to the sleeves. At the wrists and on the neckband there was in truth more than half a mark's weight of beaten gold, and everywhere set in the gold there were precious stones of diverse colors, indigo and green, blue and dark brown. This tunic was very rich, but not a whit less precious, I trow, was the mantle, and yet there were no ribbons on it, for the mantle, like the tunic, was brand new. The mantle was very rich and fine. Laid about the neck were two sable skins, and in the tassels there was more than an ounce of gold. On one a hyacinth, and on the other a ruby flashed more bright than burning candle. The fur lining was of white ermine. Never was finer seen nor found. The cloth was skillfully embroidered with little crosses, all different. Indigo, vermilion, dark blue, white green, blue, 
and yellow. The queen called her some ribbons four ells long, made of silken thread and gold. The ribbons are given to her, handsome and well matched. Quickly she had them fastened to the mantle by someone who knew how to do it, and who was master of the art. When the mantle needed no more touches, the gay and gentle lady clasped the maid with the white gown, and said to her cheerily, Mademoiselle, you must change this frock for this tunic, which is worth more than a hundred marks of silver. So much I wish to bestow upon you, and put on this mantle, too. Another time I will give you more. Not able to refuse the gift, she takes the robe and thanks her for it. Then two maids took her aside into a room, where she took off her frock as being of no further value but she asked and requested that it be given away to some poor woman for the love of God. Then she dons the tunic and girds herself, binding on tightly a golden belt, and afterwards puts on the mantle. Now she looked by no means ill, for the dress became her so well that it made her look more beautiful than ever. The two maids wove a gold thread in amongst her golden hair, but her tresses were more radiant than the thread of gold, fine though it was. The maids, moreover, wove a fillet of flowers of many various colors and placed it upon her head. They strove as best they might to adorn her in such wise that no fault should be found with her attire. Strung upon a ribbon around her neck, a damsel hung two brooches of enameled gold. Now she looked so charming and fair that I do not believe you could find her equal in any land. Search as you might, so skillfully had nature wrought in her. Then she stepped out of the dressing room into the queen's presence. The queen made much of her because she liked her and was glad that she was beautiful and had such gentle manners. They took each other by the hand and passed into the king's presence. And when the king saw them, he got up to meet them, and when they came into the great hall, there were so many knights there who rose before them that I cannot call by name the tenth part of them, or the thirteenth, or the fifteenth, but I can tell you the names of some of the best of the knights who belonged to the round table and who were the best in the world. Before all the excellent knights, Gawain ought to be named the first, and second, Eric, the son of Lach, and third, Lancelot of the Lake. Gornemont of Gohort was fourth, and the fifth was the handsome coward. The sixth was the ugly brave, the seventh Meliant of Liz, the eighth Lodwit the wise, and the ninth Dodenau the wild. Let Gandalu be named the tenth, for he was a goodly man. The others I shall mention without order, because the numbers bother me. Eslet was there with Rien and Ivan, the son of Urien, and Ivan of Loenel was there, as well as Ivan the adulterer. Besides, Ivan of Cavaliot was Garavain of Estragon. After the knight with the horn was the youth with the golden ring, and Tristan, who never laughed, sat beside Leo the Harris, and beside Brun of Pinciens was his brother, Rue the Sullen. 
the Amara sat next who preferred war to peace next sat caradues the shorthorn a knight of good cheer and cabaron of robdenek and the son of king benedict and the youth of quintarius and eater of the dolorous mountain gayheret and kay of estros amalguin and galus the ball grain bornivan and carahaz and tor the son of king arras girflet the son of do and tallus who never wearied of arms and a young man of great merit loholt the son of king arthur and sagramor the impetuous who should not be forgotten nor bedouier the master of the horse who was skilled at chess and trick-track nor brevain nor king lot nor galagantin of wales nor gronosis first in evil who was son of Kay the sessional nor labigodes the courteous nor count cadercanios nor letron of pelvisand whose manners were so excellent nor brion the son of canodan nor the count of holland who had such a head of fine fair hair he it was who received the king's horn in an evil day he had never any care for truth when the stranger maiden saw all the knights arrayed looking steadfastly at her she bowed her head in embarrassment nor was it strange that her face blushed all crimson but her confusion was so become to her that she looked all the more lovely when the king saw that she was embarrassed he did not wish to leave her side taking her gently by the hand he made her sit down on his right hand and on his left sat the queen speaking thus to the king the while sire in my opinion he who can win such a fair lady by his arms in another land ought by right to come to a royal court it was well we waited for eric for now you can bestow the kiss upon the fairest of the court i should think none would find fault with you for none can say unless he lie that this maiden is not the most charming of all the damsels here or indeed in all the world the king makes answer that is no lie and upon her if there is no remonstrance i shall bestow the honour of the white stag then he added to the knights my lords what say you what is your opinion in body in face and in whatever a maid should have this one is the most charming and beautiful to be found as i may say before you come to where heaven and earth meet i say it is meet that she should receive the honour of the stag and you my lords what do you think about it can you make any objection if any one wishes to protest let him straightway speak his mind i am king and must keep my word and must not permit any baseness falsity or arrogance i must maintain truth and righteousness it is the business of a loyal king to support the law truth faith and justice and i would not in any wise commit a disloyal deed or wrong to either weak or strong it is not meet that any one should complain of me nor do i wish the custom and the practice to lapse which my family has been wont to foster you too would doubtless regret to see me strive to introduce other customs and other laws than those my royal sire observed regardless of consequences i am bound to keep and maintain the institution of my father pendragon who was a just king and emperor now tell me fully what you think 
let none be slow to speak his mind if this damsel is not the fairest in my household and ought not by right to receive the kiss of the white stag i wish to know what you truly think then they all cry with one accord sire by the lord and his cross you may well kiss her with good reason for she is the fairest one there is in this damsel there is more beauty than there is of radiance in the sun you may kiss her freely for we all agree in sanctioning it when the king hears that this is well pleasing to them all he will no longer delay in bestowing the kiss but turns toward her and embraces her the maid was sensible and perfectly willing that the king should kiss her she would have been discourteous indeed to resent it in courteous fashion and in the presence of all his knights the king kissed her and said my dear i give you my love in all honesty i will love you with true heart without malice and without guile by this adventure the king carried out the practice and the usage to which the white stag was entitled at his court here ends the first part of my story End of Part 1 of Eric and Aeneid by Chrétien de Troyes, translated by W. W. Comfort, read by M. J. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.